1: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights program serving up some of the choicest morsels from across our coverage. I'm Lane Green, The Economist's Johnson columnist, and on the table this week, Hillary Clinton on what stops a woman from becoming America's president and how the Democrats can win back the White House, why artificial intelligence no longer needs its human helpers, and the man who zipped up Neil Armstrong. But first, left behind was our cover line this week. In the 20th century, income gaps narrowed in Europe and America because poorer places attracted more investment. No longer. Affluent places are pulling away, fueling anger and resentment. Our cover leader argues that it's time to urgently rethink how to help places hurt by globalization.
2: A child born in the bottom 20% in wealthy San Francisco has twice as much chance as a similar child in Detroit of ending up in the top 20% as an adult. Boys born in London's Chelsea can expect to live nearly nine years longer than those born in Blackpool. Opportunities are limited for those stuck in the wrong place, and the wider economy suffers. If all its citizens had lived in places of high productivity over the past 50 years – America's economy could have grown twice as fast as it did. One
1: reason for this is the importance of scale in the modern economy.
2: The companies with the biggest hoards of data can train their machines most effectively. The social network that everyone else is on is most attractive to new users. The stock exchange with the deepest pool of investors is best for raising capital. These returns to scale create fewer superstar firms clustered in fewer superstar places.
1: As regional disparities widen, rather than following those superstars, people are actually becoming less mobile.
2: The percentage of Americans who move across state lines each year has fallen by half since the 1990s. Soaring housing costs in prosperous cities keep newcomers out. In Europe, a scarcity of social housing leads people to hang on to cheap flats. Unemployment and health benefits enable the least employable people to survive in struggling places when once they would have had no choice but to move. One answer
1: is to help people move.
2: But greater mobility also has a perverse side effect. By draining moribund places of talented workers, it exacerbates their troubles. The local tax base erodes as productive workers leave, even as welfare and pension obligations mount. To avoid these outcomes, politicians have long tried to bolster left-behind places with subsidies. But such regional policies have a patchy record at best.
1: What politicians need is a completely different mindset.
2: For progressives, alleviating poverty has demanded welfare. For libertarians freeing up the economy. Both have focused on people. But the complex interaction of demography, welfare and globalisation means that is insufficient. Assuaging the anger of the left behind means realising that places matter too.
1: To find out what place-based policy should look like, pick up a copy of this week's Economist or find us online at economist.com. Somebody who knows the righteous anger of the left behind all too well is Hillary Clinton. The former Democratic presidential candidate was our guest on this week's episode of The Economist Asks. She came to explain, as the title of her new book has it, what happened and how the Democrats can get out of the political wilderness.
0: You know, I beat Bernie Sanders by four million votes, Okay, So that was a landslide by any definition. He, he, you know, was very clear that there was only one message, a single message about billionaires, you know, take back America from the billionaires. And he had ideas which were hard for him to explain, but he never had to explain them except in one editorial board meeting with the New York Daily News. Otherwise, he could just hammer away. Now, he lost the Democratic primary. And so I'm I guess arguing that it can't be either or, it has to be both and. So when people say, you know, just give up on that civil rights stuff, don't talk about it. You know, look what Trump is doing. He's playing to his base by demeaning black athletes who are standing up against racism or sitting or kneeling down against racism and injustice. You know, what is Democrats supposed to say? say, oh, um, we don't want to talk about it. Oh, it's too controversial. Uh, No. Stand up for what you believe in and what you know is right. If it costs you votes, go find the votes somewhere else. I didn't do a good enough job fighting suppression and finding the votes somewhere else, but I am determined to make sure the Democratic Party doesn't make the mistake of walking away from so many of the values and progress that we have helped to uh, bring about.
3: You
1: can hear the rest of our interview with Hillary Clinton by subscribing to The Economist Asks on iTunes or on your podcast app of choice. Now, in their search for the winning formula, perhaps the Democrats could use a little help from the latest generation of artificial intelligence. In May, a computer program called AlphaGo made headlines around the world when it beat 3-0 the world champion of Go, a fiendishly difficult game for computers. AlphaGo's latest version has just been unveiled. And as science writers Tim Cross, Jan Piotrowski, and Oliver Morton discovered in our Babbage podcast, AlphaGo Zero may have just completely changed the AI game. The key
3: difference is that this computer program used something called unsupervised learning, which means it trained itself to play Go without any help from humans at all. Why might we want a machine that can train itself? Jan? The very interesting thing that this sort of unsupervised learning can provide is solutions to certain problems that no human would ever come up with. Because when you think about it, if you feed the supervised learning algorithm, some data which was authorised, as it were, by humans, that limits the sort of artificial inventiveness that you might suspect will occur if a computer starts from scratch. The truth is, If you look at AlphaGo Zero's rating, because you can rate Go players by strength, it's much, much better than even the best human players in the world, to the point where if you had them play against each other statistically, you would never expect a human to win. So whether this thing is thinking or whether it's calculating or whether it's reckoning, it's not only arriving at the same place as humans are, it's actually arriving at at a better place than they are.
1: But though AlphaGo Zero may have a way with a problem, it might struggle with this next one. How to get Chinese office workers their lunch, piping hot, at rush hour, against traffic, and then recycle the packaging. An article in our China section bit into the booming Chinese takeaway business.
2: Three couriers in hard helmets cram into an office lift in Beijing, one clad in red, one in yellow, and one in blue. The trio are dispatching food that was purchased online through China's most popular meal ordering firms, which fill urban roads every midday with their colourful delivery people on electric bicycles.
1: Services enabling users of a single site to order from a swathe of local restaurants are expanding around the world, but in China, the industry is on a roll.
2: By the end of June, the number of registered users had risen to 295 million. 40% more than at the end of last year, according to government analysts. The value of meals bought online was about $25 billion in 2016 and could rise to around $36 billion by the end of next year.
1: But there's much hand-wringing about the consequences of the
2: craze. Delivery people often mount pavements or drive against the flow of traffic to maximise earnings during the lunchtime rush. Last month, officials in Nanjing said meal delivery bikes in the eastern city had been involved in more than 3,000 accidents in the first six months of the year. Another worry is the welfare of delivery people, many of whom are migrants from the countryside. Most hotly debated of late is the impact the business is having on the environment. Each day, about 65 million meal containers are discarded, by one estimate,
1: These mountains of waste would be less worrying if local governments did a better job of separating recyclables from junk.
2: This year, the central government ordered 46 cities to come up with new systems for sorting rubbish, which it talks of making mandatory by 2020. That is progress, but only if it is unwavering. Over the years, officials have found several similar campaigns all too easy to throw out.
1: Let's leave behind the concrete jungles swarming with delivery bikes now and head to the forests of the Republic of Georgia, where an article in our Europe section warns that a threat to the continent's breakfasts may be spreading.
3: Isolated by the Black Sea in Russia, Georgia has spent the past few decades binding itself closer to the rest of Europe. In this effort, hazelnuts play a crucial role. In 2007, Ferrero, an Italian company, set up a branch in Georgia to supply the key ingredient of its signature product, Nutella, the chocolate hazelnut paste that is the most European of all breakfast breads. Georgia is now the
1: world's third largest producer after Turkey and Italy. Hazelnuts are their biggest export
3: after copper ore. So far, so sweet. But there's a sticking point. About 10% of the hazelnuts Georgia exports come from the Russian backed breakaway territory of Abkhazia, which has enjoyed de facto independence since its war of secession in 1992 93. Georgia has no formal trade relations with Abkhazia, and hazelnuts are the only product which Abkhazian authorities allow farmers to sell there. And from next year, a new EU trade
1: agreement will require all Georgian exports to have a certificate of origin.
3: Even if Abkhazian farmers could get a Georgian certificate, it would be considered an act of national betrayal. Their nuts will thus be barred from nutellas mixing vats. But
1: cutting Abkhazia
3: off from Europe will leave it even more dependent on Russia. Russia is our strategic partner, and demand for hazelnuts is low there, says Adgur Adzinbar, the economy minister in Abkhazia's self-proclaimed government, which only Russia and a few other states recognise. We have to give priority to products that are in high demand in Russia, such as citrus and wine. Although cocoa powder and hazelnuts make an excellent blend, commerce and nationalism do not. Perhaps if the hazelnut
1: business falters, Georgia should look into cultivating some other valuable flora. In the pages of our Middle East and Africa section, our South Africa correspondent recounts a date
3: with the loneliest plant in the world. Wood's cycad is a striking plant, tall with a shaggy green crown and bright orange cones. But despite its good looks, it will never find a mate. Found in a Zululand forest in 1895, it is the only cycad of its kind and a male. It stands in splendid isolation in Durban Botanical Gardens, surrounded by
1: security cameras to thwart thieves.
3: Paradoxically, it is those who love them most who pose the biggest danger – Collectors who want exotic varieties for their private gardens. Slow-growing adult specimens, some hundreds of years old, sell for tens of thousands of dollars. But of South Africa's 38 cycad species, 25 are threatened with extinction. Two of the world's cycad species have been wiped out in the wild since 2003. Both were from South Africa. Part of the
1: difficulty in foiling the poachers
3: is telling one cycad from another. Stripped of leaves for transport, it is difficult to distinguish the trunk of an illicitly harvested endangered species from one that is legal to sell. A DNA barcoding database using gene sequences has helped with identification. A cycad identification app with close-up photos of leaf and stem types was developed to help bewildered police tell their encephalotus girlinki from their encephalotus levifolius at the south african biodiversity
1: institute pakamani shaba laments that for some cycad species it's probably too
3: late for extreme collectors rarity only makes a cycad more desirable in the end it's all about the ego he says
1: Our obituary this week was a tribute to a man who was quite the opposite. Joseph Schmidt, who died on September 25th, aged 101, was a quiet man playing a small part in one of the starriest of fields.
4: By a real piece of luck, and because he was good with his hands, especially at mending flight suits and rigging parachutes, he was taken on by NASA as a spacesuit technician in the most exciting years of America's space project,
1: He saw the first of almost everything.
4: He was there when Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in 1947, when Alan Shepard made America's first manned spaceflight in 1961, when John Glenn first orbited Earth in 1962, when Apollo 8 went round the moon in 1968, and when Apollo 11's module landed on it in 1969 for him the most mind-boggling moment of all.
1: His job was to help design the spacesuits and then, before the flight, put the astronauts into them.
4: First came cotton long johns and, in later years, after some accidents, a proper urine collection device, which he thought up himself. Then came the heavy tailor-made suit, pressurised to five pounds per square inch. The extravehicular suits for Apollo 11 were a real piece of work. 28 layers of nylon coated with Kapton and Teflon built to withstand a temperature range of 500 degrees Fahrenheit and assault from micrometeorites.
1: Inside the spacecraft, he had to buckle the astronauts in and check that they were comfortable.
4: His face and securing touch were shepherds and Glenn's and Neil Armstrong's last physical contact with Earth before, as Glenn put it, there are no more hands.
1: After the flight, it was his job to vacuum the moon dust out of the moonwalker suits. He didn't keep any.
4: Perhaps his best memento was the gold medal Glenn gave him after his orbits of Earth, with his initials JS on the back. Glenn took about ten up with him. The rest went to the president and other bigwigs. He felt real proud to get it, but kept quiet.
1: And with that, we release you into outer darkness as we've reached the end of this week's episode of Tasting Menu. Don't forget, you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find all our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or tweet us at economistradio. In London, This is The Economist.